All right. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, you and the church, and we're talking about involvement in the church, and so this is part two. Uh, this is going to be radically different from what we talked about last week, so you know, you aren't going to need a second beating from that. Um, so you can turn in your Bibles, though, to Galatians chapter 5, which is where we're going to kind of hunker down here in a little bit. Most of us have computers. Uh, if you don't have a computer, you're probably over 70. Um, but, uh, even a lot of older people have finally caved in and, you know, they have their grandson over who shows them how to use the mouse and turn it on. And for those who are over about 40 years old, computers are a little difficult. You know, if the computer started becoming popular, personal PCs, about the early 80s, and so if you, you know, are old enough that you grew up without that, then you had to go through some really painful times. Because you can send, a, you can put a kid in front of a computer and they just grab the mouse and start going for it, you know. You put an adult in front of them and they start, they're doing this with their arm, trying to... Um, <laughs> What what are you doing with your arm? Trying to make the mouse move. It's like, a, it, it doesn't take that much strength. It's, it's just like this, you know. You know how it is, because you've been there. And not only when you get a computer, is, is you have to go through the whole learning curve, but there's all sorts of things that plug into them. You know, the box is fine. It's when you stick on your monitor and your printer and your wireless router and your USB four port hub and, you know, you start sticking all this stuff on there that, man, you look back there and think, man, that's scary. You know, you keep putting things on there. There's a big gob of wires back there. And we've all spent time talking to tech support or wishing we could talk to tech support most of the time. And you're just uh, having a trial because it's not working. You, you call them up and, you know, my monitor or my printer or, you know, my wireless router, it's not working. And you tell them that. And then, then they, they always, they, there's one thing they always ask you is right off the bat. And everybody knows what it is because we've probably all been a little embarrassed at that time. And they ask you, is the power on? Because you know what? I don't care how good your piece of equipment is, and I don't care how well you have it hooked up. If the switch isn't on, it's not working. It's just not working. Well, the same thing is true with Christians. God tells us in his word that there are some switches we need to have on. And if we don't have those switches on, we're not giving glory to God. Nothing we do in the church, I don't care if you're serving and giving and teaching and doing whatever, it doesn't give glory to God. It counts for nothing if the switch isn't on, if the power isn't on. And so for this morning, I want to address these two master switches that God has given us that must be turned on in your life so that you can give glory to God and so that your involvement in the local church will count for something in eternity. And the first switch is the spirit. You need to turn on the spirit switch. Now we learned last week from 1 Corinthians 12 that every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ at the moment of salvation or placed into that body. 
First Corinthians 12, 3 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 4, verse 40, 4, 4, verse 30 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then later on in chapter uh, 4, verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. When Paul was addressing those who were engaging in immorality and giving reasons for not engaging in immorality, he said this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen: Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. However you are not in the flesh. But in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. He does not belong to him. Point being that every believer has the Holy Spirit. Is baptized by the Holy Spirit. Or placed into. We're talking water baptism. We're talking about being placed into, submersed into the body of Christ, the universal and visible body of Christ composed of all true believers. And that once you are there, you're made to drink of that spirit. You're sealed with that spirit, which implies ownership. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit and the spirit of God dwells in you. And so you have all the power you could ever want and you got the equipment it's not an equipment problem it's operator error if something isn't working in your life it's operator error now if you don't know christ if you've never given your life to christ if you know you're just um kind of winging it for jesus and you don't want to turn from your sin, you don't really want God to have control of your life, then that's a whole different thing. The Bible describes those people as spiritually dead, devoid of the Spirit. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, and verses 7 and 8, says those people are hostile toward God. And he says, not only are they, they hostile towards God, they don't subject themselves to the law of God. And it says... It's not even possible for them to do it, and they can't please God. I mean, he says it like four different ways in those two verses. You can't please God if you are in the flesh, if you don't have God's Spirit within you. But even if you do have the Holy Spirit within you, that doesn't mean the switch is on. And so in Galatians chapter 5, if you haven't turned there, turn there. We find out a little bit about how to get... The switch, the spirit switch, turned on in your life. Now, you just need to know a little bit about the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is kind of an argument, a polemic, a refutation of a group of people which are often described as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were... Jews who had come to Christ or who were being interested in Christianity and they wanted to kind of merge Christianity with Old Testament Judaism. They kind of wanted to be saved by works or saved by grace and kept by works. And so the whole, through the whole book, Paul is arguing, explaining why that is just ridiculous. 
if you're a Christian and you're saved by grace and you have God's spirit within you. And so in this section, Paul is explaining what it means to walk by the spirit. Have the power switch turned on in your life. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And here we have this command to walk by or in the spirit. You have a command. And so this tells us several things right off the bat. One, the, re- the fact that it is command tells us we have to do it. This is not something that happens automatically. This is not to be confused with receiving the spirit. We already talked about that. Every believer has the Holy Spirit within them. But. Just because the Holy Spirit is within you doesn't mean the power's on. You can, you know, plug your computer in, you don't hit the button, nothing happens. So, we are told that, now that we have the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. We also learn here that antithetical, or the opposite of being in the Spirit, or walking in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, is carrying out the desires of the flesh. That's the opposite. Because Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So whatever the desires of the flesh are, we know that you can't walk by the Spirit and carry out the desires of the flesh at the same time. It's like a light switch. You know, you walk into a room, there's a light switch there, it's on or off. Just try and turn it on and off at the same time. It just doesn't work. You get, it's either off or on, or on or off. But you, you can't, it doesn't work that way. It's only one way or the other. And that's what it is. If you are walking by the Spirit, you are not carrying out the desires of the flesh. If you are carrying out the desires of the flesh, you are not walking by the Holy Spirit. That's just how it is. This is made even clearer in verse 17, where Paul says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. Living in the flesh is living in the, with the power off. It's not walking in the spirit. It's not submitting to the things of the spirit. They're just poles apart, like north and south. So if you're obeying the command to walk in the spirit, you're not living in the flesh or carrying out the desires of the flesh. But what does that mean, carrying out the desires of the flesh? Well, here it is. Look at verse 19, where Paul tells us what happens when the spirit switch is turned off. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't, you know, the comprehensive list of all sins. It's a sampling, things like these. In other words, any person who is constantly living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin and just living a lifestyle of rebellion against God, you know something, that person's not going to heaven. They are carrying out the desires of the flesh. So the Christians are commanded, though, to walk by the Spirit. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means to submit yourself to the will of the Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, what is the will of the Spirit? If you wanted to say, okay, 
If I could just find out what the Holy Spirit, you know, do you kind of like, kind of sit there and meditate on a mountain and just say, speak to me, Lord. To let your spirit flow through me and just tell me what to do. That is extremely dangerous because another kind of spirit will come and will tell you something that's almost contrary to what God's spirit. Where do you find God's will, the spirit's will in the book that the spirit inspired, the Bible? Second Peter one twenty one. know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, what? Spoke from God. Spoke from God. So how does that work? Well, how that works is when the human author sat down and penned this book, the Holy Spirit was superintending their writing so that as they wrote what they wanted to say, God made sure they wrote what he wanted to say. So the end product is the word of God. That is why sometimes I'll say the apostle Paul says here. And sometimes I say God says What's right? Both. Both. You, you look, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, it quotes Saul, a, a verse in Psalm 95, I think 95.5, and it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But you know what it says right before that? Right before it quotes that psalm that David wrote? And the Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not... Well, who was it? Was it David? Or the Spirit. Yes. That's right. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That is why the Bible is not just another book. Because this is the inspired word of God. This is called the doctrine of inspiration. The byproduct is we have an inspired text of scripture. Now you don't need to be a Christian very long before somebody comes up to you and says, you know... I was praying about it and I really felt God moving me or the spirit moving me, you know, to commit adultery or cheat on my taxes or marry the unbeliever or do any number of sins. I mean, I have people trying to blame the Holy Spirit for about every sin you can think of. Well, I really felt that the spirit was moving me to. No, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. That was the unholy spirit. That was Satan. That was a demon or her own fleshly heart. But listen to this. The Holy Spirit never moves anybody to do anything contrary to the word that he has inspired. Ever. That would ungod him. The Holy Spirit always moves us in the direction of Scripture. And anybody who comes to you and says, well, I really feel like God is. Hey, if it's contrary to the word of God, it's not God. I don't know if it's your own fleshly heart or if it's some demon, but I'm telling you this. It's not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inspired the word of God so we could know his will and just look at the page and see it. Now, if you are walking in the spirit, you are walking according to the scriptures. This is made clear. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, against such things, there is no law. I mean, if you're doing what's right, you don't have to worry about any law telling you to do what's right because the Spirit is telling you to do what's right in the Word of God. Now, what's interesting here is this word fruit is 
singular in the Greek. It's not, and the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit, which is odd because he lists nine different things and then explains such things, which means it's nine just uh, things of a bigger category. So how could it be nine things and one thing? That's because in the Greek you have what are called composite singulars. Is that a good word? That is a tough word. See, yeah, that's a composite singular. What is that? Well, you have an egg, a single egg. It's got a shell, it's got whites, it's got a yolk. But it's just one egg. You have an orange. It's got a skin. It's got little segments. And then inside those segments are other little pods of orange juice. Okay. All of that together is a composite singular. Now this is important to understand. Because when he says the fruit of the spirit is and lists all these things. What he's saying is you got to have it all to have the single fruit. In other words, love, joy, peace, patience, hatred, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Don't cut it. You know, love, joy, immorality, outbursts of anger, you know, kindness, self-control. Doesn't work. The switch is on or the switch is off. But there's no two. You don't get to have the switch off and on at the same time. So you're either displaying the fruit of the Spirit or you're not. Now, a lot of people get confused about this because they think that in their life they can kind of have, you know, some sin over here that they don't really want to deal with. And then they want to be on over here for Jesus. No, 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 no. Listen, if you're sinning over here, then you're sinning over there. If you have some dark sin in your life and you know you're violating the word of God, you know it for a fact, you're convicted about it, you know what the scriptures say, you're violating the word of God, and then you decide, you know, I know I'm sinning over here, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to church and sing songs to God and teach in Sunday school and, you know, listen to the sermon and and celebrate communion. You know what? You're sinning over here, you're sinning on the way from here to here, and you're sinning there too. You're only sinning. The switch is on or the switch is off. And so what we learn from this is that those who are walking in the spirit are going to display deeds of righteousness. Deeds of righteousness. Now, this is so critical because this is one of those things in the Christian's life that a lot of Christians just don't understand. They don't understand what it means to walk in the Spirit, and they don't want to mean what it it is to not walk in the Spirit, and if they aren't walking in the Spirit, how to get back to walking in the Spirit. Man, this is like ABC Christianity. This is like the fundamental thing you have to know about. And if you don't know about this, you will never have the kind of life that God wants you to have. You will be struggling. You'll just be fighting things. You'll just be confused. And so the big question is this. If... If the deeds of the flesh or carrying out the desires of the flesh are antithetical and opposite to walking in the spirit, which is a life of of righteousness lived according to the word of God. If you have these two at polar extremes, then what causes you to go from here to here and what causes you to go back from here to there? That is the huge issue. And that's what we want to look at. Turn to first John chapter one. 
First John chapter one. I just want to show you this. This is just, this is cool. And if you've never figured this out, you need to figure it out this morning. Here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we have kind of a sin and forgiveness sandwich. Two slices of sin with forgiveness in the middle. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now just stop there. Notice he uses first person plural pronouns here. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is encouraging. Do you see why this is encouraging? Because this is the apostle John speaking here. He's not saying, listen, if you say you don't have sin, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. No, he says we and us and our. Why? Because he's saying, I'm a sinner just like you're a sinner. He's saying, hey guys, we all blow it. And believe me, if you think that you're not a sinner, you're deceiving yourself because you are. And that is encouraging. To know that even the Apostle John, like every other Christian, is a sinner. Now, salvation, though, doesn't cure us of being sinners in this life. And this is what a lot of people get confused about. They think, well, if I'm saved, I'm going to quit sinning. No. Now, John goes on to say... We aren't going to go there. That if anyone continually practices sin, that's a different thing. That you know you sin, you don't confess it, you don't repent of it, you enjoy it, and you just stay there. Then that's a whole different thing. But even as a Christian, even as a godly person, even as the apostle John himself, or any other apostle, or any other person, except for Jesus, whoever lived, will keep on sinning in this life. And salvation doesn't cure it. And so that's great. And what's greater is, is verse 9. Here's the forgiveness part in the sandwich. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, again, notice the first person plural pronouns, we and our and us and our and us. John's including himself here. And let me just paraphrase and amplify the verb tense here for you so you can see what John is saying. This is what he's saying. This is just so cool. He says, if we are always in the process of confessing those sins, which we will continually commit, he is always continually faithful and always continually righteous, to always be cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That is great. And then we have in verse 10, the other piece of bread. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, what's cool about this is this. This is super encouraging for these three reasons. One, it's encouraging because you know other Christians struggle just like you do. And the only people who don't sin are people who are liars and the truth is not in them, which is a sin. 
So you know, you don't ever sit there and think, oh, you know, oh, godly so-and-so. They never sin. Oh, yes, they do. They may not sin as frequently. They may not sin um, in the same way, but they still sin and they still sin regularly. The fact that he says, keep on confessing means we will keep on sinning. So everybody sins. Secondly, it's encouraging because you know that God knew before he saved you that you would keep sinning. Right? He wouldn't give you this instruction in his word if he knew you were never going to sin again. So he knows you're going to sin. And finally, it's encouraging because God tells you in this text how to deal with it. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever you sinned, what did you do? You, you know, got the animal. You know, the bullock or the lamb or the pigeon or the grain or whatever. And you went and offered it up. And I'm telling you, if you were really honest in the Old Testament, you'd be bankrupt quick. I mean, you'd be going back to that temple offering up something every couple minutes. You would just be rendered to abject poverty. You know, if they're off your sacrifice before you got out of the temple mount, you'd be turning around looking for something else to sacrifice, trying to catch a pigeon or something. We know it's true because we're all sinners and we sin a lot. I mean, you may be on a sin indeed, but man, our minds are just, they're wasted. Full of all sorts of nasty thoughts. We think, man, where'd that come from? Well, you're just a sinner. But what's cool about it here is God says, all you got to do is confess it. You know, run to the temple, rip some pigeon in two. No fat off the lobes of the kidneys. Nothing. You could be anywhere in any place and all you have to do is say, Lord, I blow it. I know I sinned. And that's it. Cleansed from all unrighteousness. Whoa. Now confession does require that you turn from your sin. You know, you can't be feasting on your favorite sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, as you're mowing it down. I mean, you got to stop. You got to turn, repent of it and confess it. So confession implies that, yes, you're going to stop and pursue the right way again. The confession just means agreeing with God or saying the same thing that God says. You're just saying, Lord, I know I just sinned. That's all there is. There's no sacrifice. There's nothing. Why? Why? Because Christ, when he came to earth, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died in the cross for your sins. He is the once for all sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews says over and over and over again. You don't need any more sacrifice. You've got him. You've got the... The once for all, the perfect blood of Christ. And so as a believer, whenever you blow it, you just say, Lord, I blew it. Cleanse from all unrighteousness. You'll be as perfect as you will ever be in heaven before God in his sight. Positionally in Christ, you'll be absolutely spotless when you confess your sins. And the power's on. And you're walking in righteousness. The problem is, though, we 
this wrong conception of what it means to be godly. Now, you know, usually if I, if you talk to people, especially immature, young believers, you know, what is a God? Well, those are people who never really sin anymore. Eh, wrong answer. Um, they still sin. You know, maybe not as much, but they still sin. So, so what is the difference between the godly Christian and the immature believer? Well, it's just this. Immature believers are beanbags. And when they sin, man, they go down. You ever tried to dribble a beanbag? They do not dribble well. They just pow. They commit the sin. They enjoy the sin. They feel bad about the sin. They feel guilty. They quit reading their Bible. They quit praying. Sometimes they quit coming to church because they've sinned. They've sinned. And Satan is just... Mm, loving it, man, because they're just playing right into his hand. He says, yeah, you sinful wretch. You sinful wretch. You hypocrite. You just stay away from those Christians. You just stay away from your Bible. It's only going to make you feel bad. And so they listen to Satan and they hide and then they're miserable and they stay miserable. And like David, they just waste away as with the fever heat of summer and they're just miserable. But God's word saying, hey, don't listen to Satan. He's not your counselor. Come to me. Come to me. Confess your sins. I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness instantaneously as many times as you want. Every single time you come, I'll give it to you. The sacrifice of my son is sufficient for you. Instead, we just, you know, kind of sin and, you know, we're walling around like a worm in the gutter after the rain. God wants it to be basketballs. Sin, recoil with confession. That's it. You know, and the difference between a godly Christian and an immature Christian is the immature Christian is the beanbag and the godly one learns how to confess. I mean, they're fast dribblers. That's all. They just, you know, I blew it up. I blew it. And sometimes you feel like you're just blowing it all day, don't you? You know why you feel that way? Because you are. (laughs) Because you are. Some people have this thought, though, in their mind, especially young believers, and I think it's part of wanting to be saved by works. And even though if you know you aren't saved by works, sometimes we have these thoughts in our mind, and we just can't quite get everything straightened out here. We have this idea that God loves us, but when we're bad, he gets mad. He doesn't love us anymore. And he's not kind to us anymore. And he's out to get us. And so if we do good, he likes us. And we don't do good, he hates us. And we do good, he likes us. No, he loves you. Stop. You know, when a, you know, when a mother has a child who disobeys, I hate you forever. Get out of my house. No. The fact that the child disobeyed, yeah, the mother's grieved, but she's not going to get rid of her kid because the kid disobeyed. The same thing is true of God. God doesn't hate us when we disobey, and we don't obey, so he'll bless us. We have all the blessings we need in Christ. I mean, read it in Ephesians 1.3. In him you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And you know, every means in the Greek is every. 
So you've got all the blessings you need. So the question is, though, a lot of people say, so when we sin, does God stop the blessing? You take a cup. You put it under the faucet. The water of God's blessing is flowing. And if you keep it there, your cup will overflow. And then you sin, what happens? God goes, and turns off the faucet, right? Wrong. No, what happens is, is you... By turning to sin, turn away from receiving God's blessing and you turn your cup upside down. The blessing is there. It's flowing around you. But you aren't receiving it because you have chosen to turn away from the blessing that God is handing you. So the question is, what writes the cup? Confession. So what happens is, is all day long as Christians, we're kind of like the grandfather clock. <laughs> you know, it's got this pendulum. And you're kind of swinging towards obedience to God. And the next thing you know, you're swinging towards sin. And then you confess it. And you're towards righteousness again. Then temptation comes along and you're swinging towards sin again. And all day long, we're tick, 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 tick. That's it. The immature believer, not knowing this. Not understanding how detrimental it is to live in unconfessed sin as a Christian kind of goes kick and sticks there in the sin side. And they don't confess. And then they wonder, my life just isn't, you know, Bible reading is just kind of boring and church is kind of boring and I'm convicted when I'm around other people. Well, you should be. They're in sin. And don't think that. You know, you can pretend to be a Christian over here while you're in sin over here. It just doesn't work. It's either you're in sin or you're not in sin. Your sins are confessed or they're not. It's not a matter of forgiveness. You have all the forgiveness you need in Christ. God says, keep on confessing your sin. And when sin is confessed, the switch is on, the power's on, the spirit is in control. You're walking the spirit. You're being led by the spirit. You will display the deeds of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And you'll be able to give glory to God. When you sin, switch off. Now you think to yourself, well, what does this have to do with being involved in church? I thought we were going to talk about church. Well, I think you can probably get the connection. If you come to church and you're, quote, involved in church, and the switch isn't on, it doesn't matter what you do, what activities you do, what things you do, how you sing, how you serve, how you teach, how you encourage, how you hand out bulletins, whatever. If you have sin in your life, you're not pleasing God. So you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. And you need to realize that as you come to be involved in local church, and it doesn't just have to be on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, we're talking about all the time during the week. We're going to talk about this in a minute. When you're involved in the church, you have to be walking in the Spirit if you're going to give glory to God, if you're going to grow, if you're going to have joy, if you're going to have peace, if you're going to have all the blessing that God wants you to have. And if you're living in sin and you, you think you're going to pretend to be one of these Christians who, you know, I've only got this little wretched thing in this closet behind me and you know, God's not going to notice it because I'm going to, you know, put some money in the plate and I'm going to serve in Sunday school and I'm going to get it. All he sees is what's behind you. 
All he sees is that sin. That's all he sees and says, deal with it, deal with it, deal with it. You're just a beanbag on the floor and you're just wallowing there. And so you need to confess. You need to repent. You need to call up the IRS and say, hey, I cheated on my taxes. You need to call up that person that you were mean to and say, hey, I'm sorry. You need to go apologize to your wife or apologize to your husband or talk to that friend or deal whoever you sinned against, whatever you did. If it's just against God, then deal with it with God. But deal with it. Deal with it. Confess it. Turn from it. And then God's spirit will be in your life. So if you're looking at your life now and you're saying, man, I'm just not growing like I am. I just don't have that joy like I used to. I just don't enjoy reading the Bible and prayers a burden or whatever. I ask you this. Is there any sin in your life you're not dealing with? And I imagine there is. You're just a beanbag. And so just get up there. It's just keep confessing. Keep turning from it. When you do that, the switch is on. You turn to sin, switch is off. And that's all there is. There's one more switch. Secondly, you need to turn on the love switch. (laughs) Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is telling us here in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, that one of the evangelistic strategies for reaching the world for him is for people in the local church to love each other. And not just on Sunday morning and not just on Wednesday nights, but just always be loving each other. And when they see that, they'll say, wow, do you see those Christians, how they, how they love each other through thick and thin? Jesus says, that's how they're going to know that you're his disciple by your love for other people in this local body. But there are so many wrong definitions of love floating around there. It's just sick. You know, there is just, I wouldn't go into it. You know it's true. Love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling you have towards somebody. Or some erotic passion. Or some aesthetic like, you know, people love hamburgers and love pizza. That's not biblical love. Love isn't defined by feelings or emotions or passions or desires. Now, that's not to say that Christians who love don't have feelings, emotions, passions, and desires. But that is not what defines love. You know, sometimes when you love, you feel anger. Sometimes you feel persecuted. Sometimes you feel rejected. Sometimes, you know, you feel all kinds of things when you're loving somebody. It's not always a good feeling. That comes with doing what is right and loving somebody. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think a lot of us know this text. We mentioned it last week. We just want to look at it briefly. If you remember in chapter 12, Paul basically says, listen, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual gifts and you need to use them. And don't go out there trying to seek some other great gift, some prominent gift, some miraculous gift. You get what you get at salvation and be content with it. 
He says, I'm going to show you the better way. And then he goes into chapter 13. And then the first three verses, he says, let me give you some examples here. And so he talks about, you know, people who speak with the tongues of men and angels who have all knowledge, who give their all their possessions to the poor and then, you know, get burned at the stake. I mean, huge gifts and huge religious deeds that we would think, wow. And he says, but if it doesn't have love, it's what? Nothing. It amounts to nothing. It gives no glory to God. It does no good. So I don't care how great your gifts are. If you aren't using it in love, if you aren't loving one another as you use the gifts, it accounts for nothing. It is nothing. You're just a pot with a spoon banging around in it. Now, look at verse 4. Here's the definition. So he tells us, you've got gifts. Don't go seeking great gifts. Just accept what you have. Use it to edify other people. Do it out of love. Verse 4, let me tell you what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And notice there's no emotions in the list. Every one of those things mentioned in verses 4 through 8 are all actions we do in relationship to other people. Then he goes on to say, you know, there's some great gifts that are out there, but they're all going to be done away with, but not love. You're going to be loving people for all eternity. Now, we don't have time. If you look at this text and other texts that talk about love... True biblical love has five qualifications. Let me just give them to you. You write these down, run these through your head whenever you're out there and you're wondering, "Am am I loving this person or not? One, love is unconditional. Love is unconditional. What that means in the Greek is it doesn't have any conditions. That means... No condition, no criteria for giving it. Nothing the other person does makes you love them or does not make you love them. If you're giving biblical love, unconditional love. You know, that's love isn't a kickback for certain behavior. You know, I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine and I'll love you if you love me. And, you know, that's not biblical love. That's just paying each other with kindness for kindness received. Secondly, love is self-sacrificing. Love always costs you something. It costs you time. It costs you energy. It costs you the use of your skills, you know, wear and tear in your vehicle. Um, It costs you just putting up with somebody who's, you know, not all there. Everybody's looking at the person next to you. It's like, here we all are, man, God. Brings a bunch of winners together. (laughs) Some people are, you know, okay. um, I'm going to be good to this person. So love costs you something. It always costs you something. Third, love is directed by the word of God. 
In order for you to be loving somebody biblical, you have to make sure you're loving them according to the scriptures. If you aren't loving them according to the scriptures, I don't care how good your intentions are, how much effort you put into it, you're not loving them. Remember we read in there, love rejoices in the truth. So if you're loving somebody in error, you're not loving them. You're not loving them. So it has to be according to the word of God. Four, love seeks to do what is best for others regardless of how they feel about it. And this is what's really hard because we love to be men pleasers. You know, we want to do something to somebody that makes them like us because that feels good to us. So who are we really loving? Us. Yeah, what we're doing is is we're out to feel good about it. So we're looking for a feel good from someone else. So we're going to, quote, do what they think is loving to them so that we can feel good ourselves. But that has not biblical love. Biblical love does what is best for other people according to the scriptures, regardless of how they feel. You find some friend, this person is, you know, uh, involved in sin. They're the beanbag. They're on the floor. They're in the sin. You come up to them and say, hey, pal, you know, what are you doing down there? You've fallen into sin. This is not good. This is just going to make you miserable. This is just going to ruin your life. It's contrary to the scriptures, man. Get back up. Confess your sin. Turn from it. Come on, get back up. No. (laughs) Judge not, lest you be judged. So then you go away and you ask a couple other buddies to come and say, hey, we need to talk to so-and-so. So then you all gather around and say, hey, guy, you know, we got it here. We, you know, we want to pray for you. Get off the ground, man. Get out of that sin you're in. Confess it to God. Turn from it, man. Start walking with the Lord again. Who are you to judge me? Get out of here, you religious fanatics. You know, I know what I'm doing. God spoke to me. You know, it's a sure, sure. And they say, listen, if you don't get up, and confess that sin and repent of it. We're going to tell everybody and then everybody's going to get around you and say, get up. And then they get fuming. Oh, if you do that, I'll sue you. I'll sue you for everything we have. So you have. Say, ah. And sometimes they cuss and swear and get rather carnal. Why? Are they feeling good? No. Are you feeling good? No. Are you loving them? Absolutely. Because you're doing what is best for them according to the word of God, regardless of how it makes you feel or them feel. Fifth, and most importantly, love has as its motive the love of and desire to give glory to God. You've got to have this one straight in your mind. The chief end of man is to do what? Glorify God and enjoy it forever. So the reason we exist is to glorify God. God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God commands us to love one another. Right? So if you want to show love towards God, you have to show love towards other people. That's why the two great commandments are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because you can love God directly, and you can love God indirectly by loving other people. So your motive for loving one another is always to be 
Because I love God and I want to glorify Him. Now, as soon as that happens, as soon as you understand that concept, this is the great thing about it. Nothing anybody can ever do will ever make you stop loving them. Because your love's unconditional. Because the motive of you giving them love is not them or what they do, but God because of who He is. Do you see that? That's what unconditional love is. You know, a couple, you know, is having marriage problems. The wife is mad at her husband. The husband is mad at her wife. They're bickering. They're fighting. They're arguing. Listen, you want to come into counsel? Fine. I can tell you what it is already. You're not loving each other. Unconditionally. You got worldly love going in here. The husband offends the wife. The wife quits loving the husband. Why? Because the motive of her love to her husband isn't what? The Lord. And the wife isn't loving us because it's not the Lord. He is not loving the Lord. And that's the problem. And see, is once you figure this out and you say, I'm going to love you because I love God and I want to give God glory, then nothing ever gets in the way. No criteria, no circumstance, no amount of meanness. That's why Jesus said, even love your enemies. And they're doing your bad. They're trying to kill you. And so that's what it means to love. When a couple takes a vow before God that they would love and cherish each other until death, what are they saying? I am going to love you as long as you love me. I'm going to love you as long as you, you know, keep being kind to me. No, because also included in those vows, at least if I marry you, is the better for worse. Richer and poor, sickness and health. As long as you both shall live. See, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, healthy or sick, rich or poor. It doesn't matter because those things aren't criteria for giving love. The only criteria is God exists. I want to love him and I love him by keeping his command. So I'm going to love that person. Period. So, if anything in your life ever makes you stop loving somebody, you know whose fault it is. It's your fault. The switch is off. Now, let's close with this. Let's just give a little, you know, electrical instruction here. You go into your electrical panel, and that's that box with all those scary, dusty little breaker things in there. You know, when you try the curling iron and the hair dryer at the same time, and then you have to go and flip the switch, or the toaster and the coffee pot. It, okay, we all know that. And you go into that electrical panel, that, that fuse box there, and, and you see all these little switches in there. And they all turn on and off. And, and all those little switches, those single switches there, they all... Turn on 110 volts to that line, that circuit line, so things work. Now, in addition to that, there are some towards the top, usually, that are, that are two single ones, but they're tied together. They have this metal thing on there. And that is for the 220 volt circuits. That's the single ones are for 110. You put two together, 220, and do the math. Those things that run like your water heater and, you know, your electric stove and your air conditioner, big things. Now, both of those switches 
are tied together so that you can never turn off half because they're they're stuck together they're either both on or they're both off and they have to be that way otherwise that 220 volt whatever won't work well in the same way if you're going to walk in the spirit you have to love one another these two switches are welded together Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. You can't be walking in the Spirit and not loving. You can't be loving and not walking in the Spirit. You're either walking in the Spirit and loving one another, or you're not walking in the Spirit, you're not loving one another. That's it. It's either both on or both off. And I tell you this because as you serve in the church, whether it's in this building, when I say church, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the group of people you see sitting around here and wandering around. When you serve in the church, whatever day of the week it is, whatever location it is, whenever you're loving somebody, you've got to love them in the fruit of the spirit because the two always go together. And if you have some sin in your life, you can't love them. You can do kindness to them and they may think you're a great person, but you're really not loving them. You can't do it. The switch is on or the switch is off. And that is why Jesus said the great command is to love God and to love your neighbor. That's why Jesus said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. You're walking in the spirit. You're loving one another. If you're in sin, you're doing neither. So what you need to do is you need to leave here today with this understanding and commit yourself to do what God wants you to do for his glory because you love him. And this is the path to blessing. And when you sin, confess quickly, confess quickly, confess quickly. And then that's what the Christian life's all about. God knows you're going to sin. He's made provision and he wants to just have his spirit bless you abundantly. He wants you to grow in the Lord. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have just abundance of what many people never experience because they don't know that they need to turn on these switches. So get them turned on, give glory to God, and you'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we learned this morning, just the importance of walking in the spirit, not the flesh, the importance of loving one another in a biblical sense so that we are doing what is best for them. And Father, doing it out of love for you, not because of anything they do for us. Father, I just pray that as believers, we would be exemplary in this fashion that you would help us to all grow in this way if there's somebody here who doesn't know you who doesn't have your spirit who cannot please you who can never love in a biblical way because they don't know you and have the resources to do it i pray that they would give their lives to christ and for the rest of us may we leave here ready and willing to continually confess our sins and to also rejoice that you are always faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we do. Father, we praise you for that. Help us to do it for your glory. Amen.